Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide, lead, show us what you'd want us to see from, the, from this section. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Job chapter 13. This is Job's continuing answer to Zephar. Zephar had said that God is too big to understand, that we cannot be righteous enough to please God. And that was his premise, and Job has been answering that. So... Job 13, verse 1. Lo, my eyes have seen this, my ear has heard and understood it. What you know, the same do I know also. I am not inferior to you. Surely I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. But you are forgers of lies, you are physicians of no value. Oh, that you would altogether hold your peace, and it should be your wisdom." Hear now my reasoning and hearken unto the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak wickedly for God and will and talk deceitfully for him? Will you accept his person? Will you contend for God? Is it good that he should search you out? Or as one man mocks another, do you so mock him? He will surely reprove you if you do secretly accept persons. Shall not his excellency make you afraid, and his dread fall upon you? Your remembrances are like unto ashes, your bodies are bodies of clay. Hold your peace, let me alone, that I may speak, and let come on me what will. All right, we're going to stop there. So here is Job's answer. He says, Lo, my eyes have seen this, my ears have heard and understand. In other words, he goes, I know what you're saying is true. God is... God is very large, God, God is very ununderstandable, and that the righteous cannot stand before him. He says, I, and remember, I keep telling us over and over what these guys say to Job. Job says, yes, I understand that what you're saying is true, however. <laughs> All right? Um, and this is what he keeps going over and over again. He goes, I know what you're saying is true. And then he makes a very interesting statement. What you know, the same I know also, I am not inferior to you. Basically, he's telling him, quit talking down to me. I understand what you're saying. I know what you're talking about. Quit trying to make me feel like I don't know anything or that you're better than me. And you know, one of the things that is very hard when you're counseling somebody is you've got to be able to counsel them without making them feel worse. Uh, and you've got to counsel them as if you've got to counsel them in such a way that you don't come across as knowing more than they do. Because neither one of them are probably true. And this is what Job is saying to them, that their counsel is not all that good. And then he says something very interesting. Surely I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. And this word for reason means to present my case. So basically he is saying, I don't understand what's going on, and I, all my desire is, is to go before God and give him my case. Explain my case to him. Now, this is a bold statement. It's something that I have heard others say. I just want to stand before God. I've heard people being so bold. I just can't wait to see God and, and tell him off for what he's done to me. I'm going, you've got to be nuts. <laughs> uh, you know, but this is where Job's at. He is, he is struggling. He has been honoring God. He has given sacrifices. He does not understand what's going on. Now, we're very fortunate, and I've said this over and over again. We had the first two chapters that we know exactly what's happening to Job. 
he does not have the advantage to know what's happening. All he knows is I've served God, I've been obedient, I've done the things I'm supposed to do, and now here I am being beat up by God. Now he doesn't realize that Satan is the one beating him up and that Satan was permitted to do so. All he understands is God has let me down. <laughs> kind of is, what he, is where he's at. Uh, and then he turns to them and says, you are forgers of lies. You are gluing together lies is literally what it says in the, in the Hebrew. He goes, you're just packing the lies together. You're making your argument and it is not a valid argument. And so he says, you're forgers of lies and are physicians of no value. You are worthless physicians. He goes, you've come here to help me. And all you're doing is piling on lies together, you know, forming lies together, and you are doctors or physicians that are worthless. Now, he doesn't have a very high opinion of his friends at the moment. And how many times maybe have you met somebody that just piles up a bunch of lies? And the lies sound good on their arguments per se. And I've listened to people and I've you know, I've listened to them make up their long arguments ba based on something. And then I've told them, you know, then at the end of their argument, I go, your, your case is really good except for one problem. I don't agree with your very first premise statement, so therefore everything you've said doesn't help you. It doesn't help your argument because I disagree with you on the first statement. And this is where Job is getting ready, is telling them, he goes, you're, you're adding all these things. What you're saying is really good, but I disagree with your very premise that I am an evildoer that has been hiding my evil for a long time. And he goes, I disagree with you there. So therefore, everything that you've told me <laughs> has been wrong. And Job is correct on that because God's testimony of him was that he's a perfect and upright man that hates evil. Their premise on him is, Job, you've done something. You must be, doing, must be a terrible person. You've been hiding it. Nobody's known how evil you are because you would not get all this stuff done. So their premise is totally different from God's premise. Job is holding on to his premise that he has been honoring God. They're making the assumption, well, this, all these bad things are happening. Therefore, Job, you are, must be an evil person deep down in your heart. And this is where Job is at with him. He goes, I just want to stand before God because I don't understand. And this is something we need to be very careful when we're trying to help somebody who's suffering. They may or may not deserve it. And you know what? It really is irrelevant when we're trying to help them and comfort them. Even if they deserve it, that we're, our comfort is not going to come with, I told you so, you need to behave and you need to correct your actions. Our comfort comes by helping them, getting them into a place where they can now analyze their life and say, I need to repent. Job's friends are not very good comforters. All they want to do is keep attacking him, say, Job, finally, would you just admit what you've done wrong and get it over with and, and get moving on? And Job's saying, you're terrible comforters. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. You're not helping. You're of no value. He goes, oh, that, I would oh, that you would altogether hold your peace and it should be your wisdom. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement. You know, would you just be silent? And Psalm 17, 28 says, even a fool is, looks wise if he keeps silent. And so Job is basically saying the same thing. If you would just shut up for a while, you'd look, you would look like you have some wisdom. Uh, and he goes, but you're talking. 
And how many times does our talking represent the fact that we have no wisdom at that moment? Uh, one of my favorite scriptures is on the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter says to Jesus, um, and the verse starts, because he did not know what to say, he said, shall we build three booths for you? Yeah, uh, it was one of those great statements that say, well, uh, that should have been said because he didn't know what to say, he stayed silent, should have been what he did, but he spoke and Elijah and Moses left, left the premises and it was just Jesus and them at that point. Um, you know, and it's so interesting, sometimes the best thing that we can do is just be silent. When we don't know for sure what's going on or we don't know, have a clue what's going on, silence is the best thing. And silence sometimes is the wisest case of action for us. Um, if you know that what you're going to say is going to bother somebody and, and cause an argument, then it is better not to say anything. And this is something you learn over time with, you know, if you have a friend who's got a volatile personality, you know, you learn quickly there are times when you just don't say what needs to be said because you don't need them to be angry. Uh, even though it may be the truth, it may not be worth saying. And so here he is sitting up there and saying, you guys could just, if you would be quiet, you would be wise. And uh, it says, hear now my reason and hearken to the pleadings of my lips. So he goes, listen to my correction. My correction was to, for you to be silent. Pay attention to it. <laughs> Hear, be obedient. And hearken and give attention to my uh, pleadings or my case being presented. So here he is saying, you, you guys just listen. Just listen for a little while. Because all along he's been saying, I'm innocent. I don't understand what's going on. And their premise is you have to be guilty, otherwise these things would not be happening. And you know, this is one of the hard things when people are on two opposite poles of, a, of an argument. Neither side often listen anymore, especially in today's world. It used to be that you could discuss things opposite you know, to a degree. But one thing I have learned very much is if somebody is totally opposite of what I believe, it's not worth talking very much. I may give them my, my case, but that's one time is all I'm going to do and I'm going to stop. Because if they're totally diametrically opposed, no argument is going to work. I learned that the hard way over the years of trying to debate with different, with uh, Jehovah's Witnesses visiting my house or Mormons visiting my house. They are so stuck in what they believe that they don't listen to anything you say. So it's not worth taking your time to argue with them. I present my case, let it go. And you know, this is, and I've even told one of them that was very strong who wanted to talk, I'm going, I'm not wasting my time because you are stuck in what you believe. You know what I believe, I know what you believe, and neither one of us are going to change, and you need to understand that. We've had this discussion before, and I'm not doing it anymore. And, you know, this is where we need to be at times, just not worth it. And I'm willing to discuss and, and explain almost anything with anybody, but once I've explained it, I'm not going to sit there and explain it five or six times and hope that one of those times is going to make them understand because they know it already. They know what's going to be said. And here's what he says. He goes, you know, uh, you're not listening. 
Then he says something very interesting. He goes, will you speak wickedly for God? All right. He goes, you are speaking. Basically, he's saying you guys are trying to make your case before as if you were God. You've been telling me that I'm a terrible sinner. God knows that, he's, that I'm not a terrible, wicked sinner. And therefore, you are putting words in God's mouth. And kind of an interesting statement that he makes. You know, will you speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? All right. He's going, you're not being good counselors, as he, as he talked about. He goes, you're not even understanding things from the perspective of God, and you're speaking foolishness. This is something we need to be very careful of when we speak and say something that from the Bible that says, this is what God says, make sure that you're right. right? One of the things about prophets are they always had to speak and prophesy truthfully and correctly Otherwise, the result of it was, if they did not do so, and they said, thus saith the Lord, and it was not true, they were to be executed. Because God take, takes it very seriously when people you invoke his name to say something. Uh, when I was in a particular church, a lot of, a lot of people would say, uh, God told me to say this. And I'm going, well, that's very interesting. Go ahead and tell me what it is. And when it didn't match the Bible, I would tell him, you know, I don't think God told you that. It doesn't match the Bible. Or if it had something to tell me what to do with my life, I'm going, well, it's quite interesting. God told you, but it didn't tell me. Uh, you know, but what that was supposed to be in that particular denomination was as soon as you say God said, all argument was supposed to stop. You know, because they were speaking for God. Job is saying, you know, are, why would you speak deceitfully for him? Why would you not recognize who he is and do this? Is it good that he should search you out or is one that mocks another, do you mock, do you so mock him? And I kind of find this is very interesting. He goes, what if the tables were turned, basically? Let's change this to a little bit. What if the tables were turned and God was searching you out? How would you survive? Uh, you're, you're attacking me, telling me how, how bad I am. What if these tables were turned and you were the one that was having all this hard time and being, being searched out? You know, Job recognizes that God may be doing something in his life. He doesn't recognize what it is. He doesn't understand what it is that God may be doing. But he recognizes that God is doing something. He doesn't understand it. He knows he's been obedient to God. He does not know that Satan is the one that's trying to turn, turn his heart. And he's just looking at him saying, you know, I don't understand any of this. And he goes, what if the shoe was on the other foot? You were the one suffering. Is this the way you would want to be treated? Would you want people to accuse you of evil? Would you want them to make you feel worse than you already feel? All right. Uh, and we've all met people who will do this kind of thing, trying to make you feel worse than, you're, than you are. And they, and they usually will do it with the right, you know, kind of with the right heart on the one side. They want you to get right with God and get, get everything worked out. But they're not listening to God. And one of the most important things we can do is to minister to people through the anointing of God and the, and the work of God, not with what we think we see. And this is why it's important. One of the things that I see here is these guys did not seem to ever pray for Job before they even started opening their mouths. 
And this is why I say to us all, the most important thing we can do is pray for somebody. Before we try to correct them, before we try to counsel them, we need to be praying for somebody so that the words will be the anointed words of God, not what we think we know. And the problem that they have here is they're speaking as they think they know and not what, not what God is saying. Because if they had gone to God, they might have had softer words. Oh, God is testing you for some reason. Okay, now we're going to sit back and just encourage you to, to learn. And that's not what they were doing. Um, and he goes, yeah, what if it was on the other, she was on the other foot? Shall not his excellently, excellency make you afraid and his dread fall upon you? In other words, if you were standing before God, would you not feel great fear? And Job is recognizing this. Uh, and later on in this book, he's going to say that, you know, he, um, his only desire is that God doesn't terrify him when he stands in front of him. All right. Um, he understands that God is so big that if you stood before God, you would all of a sudden understand your, sm your, your smallness. He understands that God is so perfect that how can you present a case to him? He understands all of this stuff, and yet he wants to present his case to God. He is so hurting that he just wants to say, God, why? This is what I believe. And yet he understands that he is so small, just as, just as Zophar said, you know, God is so big, so beyond comprehension that we, couldn't, we can't understand him. How can you argue with him in the first place? And that we are never righteous enough to stand before God. Job understands all of this, and yet he wants to stand before God and present his righteousness <laughs> as being acceptable. Uh, and, you know, this is going to be, you know, it to me almost sounds funny. Yeah. He knows that he can't be righteous enough to accept God, but he, for God to accept him, but he wants to present his righteousness before God. And how many people do the same thing in our, in our day and age? Well, especially even Christians. I know that I'm not all that good. I know that I'm, I'm only in here by the righteousness of God, but I just want to present my case before God for all the bad that's happening. And this is where Job is at. He's so hurting that he just wants to come up, and he goes, you know, that God would make him afraid, would keep him from being able to speak, and his dread would be. He goes, your remembrances are like those unto ashes, and your bodies as bodies of clay. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement that they're making. It's some form of proverb that, that we're not absolutely sure what he's gone. He's going, he goes, your remembrances are ashes. They're worthless. Everything you're remembering is worthless. Have you ever felt yourself that what you know about God is kind of worthless at the moment? I've been there when I've struggled with different things, when I've tried to understand what God is saying, saying, God, everything I know seems to not fit what I'm dealing with. They're, they're almost totally worthless. And he goes, and your bodies are bodies of clay. You are nothing. You are speaking for God, pretending that you know God. Everything that you know is worthless. And by the way, you are just flesh and blood. You are bodies of clay that God has formed. Who are you to stand in his place? And Job is getting a little perturbed with him at one, on one side of it, but he's also putting together quite an argument that we as human beings really cannot speak for God or even speak 
with God because of who we are. And how short are our memories as human beings? Now, God has expressed that over and over in the scriptures again when he keeps repeating himself over and over again because he knows that as human beings, we forget. And then when we think we know, we have forgotten already. And when we think we know anything, we've forgotten what we've forgotten. And he goes, we are just nothing but clay formed by God. And we need to really understand who we are at all times because sometimes we get too big for our own britches thinking that we know something. And this is one of the things I appreciate over the years that God keeps showing me that everything I think I know, I really don't know completely. And he shows me a deeper knowledge of what I, what I thought I knew. His grace, his love, his mercy, salvation itself. You know, he keeps showing me deeper knowledge of himself. How big is God? You know, it's amazing to me that no matter how big I think God is, and I know that he's infinite, but we as finite individuals like to put some finite number on that infinity. And for some of us, that becomes a very big number, but it's still a number. And God says, no, I'm bigger than that. How powerful is God? Well, God, you can do anything. Well, what is anything? As soon as we say he can do anything, we're thinking about things that he could do. Uh, and, you know, we, we end up with this problem being finite beings that trying to think of an infinite is an impossibility. I remember when I was in math class and they were trying to teach us what infinity means. You know, and it was like, okay, infinity is a very big, no is a big number that has no end. Well, what do you mean by that? And we, we never really understood it because we cannot understand infinity. And it's kind of interesting as you look over history how big infinity, how big, big numbers have changed. In the 1800s, a big number was 10,000. That was a huge number. Nobody ever thought in terms of num a number that big. You know, you, you were going to live your entire life owning a house and barely making, you know, making a couple thousand dollars. And if you hit $10,000, you were extremely rich. And that was unthinkable. Uh, now we think, you know, we blow through $10,000, you know, if we're poor. And, uh, you know, we, we think now, we used to think in millions, now we're thinking in billions. And if, you're, and if you're caught up with billions, you think of trillions. We have no idea how big trillion is. You know, uh, if you were trying to count to a trillion, it would take you forever. And yet we throw that number around like it's, like it's nothing. And pretty soon we'll be talking about quadrillion. Uh, which is a really big number that we can't comprehend. And so this is what happens as we go forward on this. He says, you are nothing but clay. Your remembrances are nothing. And he goes, hold your peace, let me alone, that I may speak, and let, and let come on me what will. Wherefore do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, yet I will trust him, and I will remain maintain my own ways before him. He shall also be my salvation, for a hypocrite shall not come before him. Hear diligently my words and my declaration with your ears. Behold now, I have ordered my case. I know that I shall be justified. Who is he that plead with me? For now, if I hold my tongue, I shall give up the ghost. So here he is continuing on. He goes... Hold your peace and leave me alone. So he's going back to be silent. Just be silent and be wise. Quit 
talking. Have you ever had somebody you just want to say quit talking because they're not making any sense? Uh, I've had two members in my family who are now both dead, but you know they were, they were always right. Always. And get those two together, and it was like a firestorm where neither one of them would listen to the other, neither one of them would quit talking, and it didn't matter whether they knew what they were talking about or not, they were right. And they would, and I could just hear Job saying, would you just be quiet? Stop talking. And I felt like saying that a couple of times to him, just stop talking. Neither one of you were right in, the, in many cases. And even when one was right, the other would always think they were right, and they would just argue the whole time they were together. Job is basically telling his friends, you know, would you all just be quiet? Neither one of you, none of the three of you know what you're talking about. And you're all just speaking nonsense. And I would just like you to be quiet. And I will speak. And he goes, and then let come what will. He goes, I am going to talk to God. And whatever falls is going to be what's going to be accepted. He goes, I just want to be able to present my case to God. And then I will take whatever he decides as the truth. He has a very godly perspective. He's getting a little irritated, but he just he says, I just want to present my case to God. And then whatever God says, I will accept. Then he gives a very interesting statement. He goes, wherefore do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Now, this is a proverb that as I was looking up, trying to figure out anybody knew it, knowing anything, they, every place I said, nobody knows what it means. I kind of get an idea on this. He goes, I will take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand. He goes, I think he is so pain, in pain. He goes, I'm willing to just cause pain in myself. And he goes, I've got my life in my hand. I'm really set before God. If it causes me pain... I'm willing to accept the pain from God. If it doesn't cause me pain, praise God, it's what, it, what worked. But he says, I'm, I've got it all in my own hands, and I'm going to present it to God and take what is going to come. All right? He's basically saying, I'm going to take my chances. I'm going to I hold my life in my own hands in this case, and I'm willing to take and do what it, whatever needs to be done. Uh, because he's in pain. Remember, he's lost everything. His health is miserable. He's got boils all over himself, and he's in great pain. I mean, I've had one or two boils on my body and been in pain. I can't even imagine what it felt like to, for Job to have boils covering his body. One or two boils can hurt. One boil can hurt. And he's got them everywhere. And so he's saying, I am tired of all this. He goes, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, but I maintain my own ways before him. He goes, even if God kills me, I'm going to trust him. What a testimony Job has. He goes, I'm in great pain. I'm tired of all this. I just want to present my case before him. And if he kills me, so be it. I'm still going to trust him. It's kind of going back to what his wife told him, curse God and die, except now he's saying, I just want to present my case to God, and if God's not happy with it, then let him take my life, and we'll be done with it. And 
I love this because this sounds so much like Daniel, Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Though, you know, you're going to cast us in the fire, our God is able to keep us. But if he doesn't, we will still not turn away from him. We will still trust in him. This is such an important thing for us. I am going to do what I'm going to do, and if God takes my life, great. If he doesn't, great. And P, uh, Paul said the same thing. He goes, my desire is to, to die and go to heaven, but, my, but while there's something to do on this world, I am willing to just serve God. Or, at, you know, or as the disciples, you know, thank God we were found worthy to suffer. This is the same type of statement. I'm, whatever God wants, that's fine. If he, when I speak my case and he, if he wants to take my life at that time, I'm still going to trust God. Now his friends do not seem to have this kind of an attitude. They don't recognize the righteousness of Job. They think that Job somehow has been harboring secret sins that they didn't know, that nobody has known, that all of a sudden God is revealed to, 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 to the world by the destruction of Job's property. And Job is saying, I just want to stand before God. And if he takes my life, he takes my life. He goes, and, but I will maintain my own ways before him. The same thing he's been telling his friends. I am not this bad. I have not done anything this to deserve what's going on. He goes, and I will maintain this all the way to before God. Now, it's quite interesting that when God does show up, what does Job do? <laughs> he says, I clamped my hand over my mouth and I had nothing to say because he was finally in front of the absolute righteous one. And, you know, this is the thing about it. The more we know God, the more we recognize that we're not really that good. And this is what the word of God and the mirror of God is all about. We get to know his word and all of a sudden we start recognizing that where I thought I was good is still not good enough. Because I start measuring myself not against the other people that I know, not against what I think I know about God, but when I stand before God and his word, I get to recognize that I am nothing of where I'm supposed to be. And this is the, one of the things that I have learned over the years as I study God's word. Every time I think that I might be approaching what God desires for me, he shows me that he's got another level and another height that says, you're not there yet. You're not where I want you to be, which is perfect. And we cannot be perfect. And this is what's going to happen as we go forward to draw closer to God. Now, Job does not have the word of God to use as a mirror. He only knows what little he knows about God. And he thinks at this point of his life that somehow he can be good enough that God will take pleasure in him. And then when he does stand before God later on in this book, he's like, oh, here's the righteousness of God. I better just shut up because I am nothing compared to his righteousness. Now, compared to other men, he was probably pretty good. That was God's testimony of him. He's a, he's a perfect man that, that hates evil. But compared to God, his righteousness paled. And we need to understand that no matter how good we get in this flesh, 
no matter how good we are compared to other people, when we're compared to God, we don't stand a chance. And this is why Jeremiah says that we are, that our heart is totally corrupt. It, it is, and who can know it? And when God starts showing us how corrupt we are at our innermost being because he starts shining more of his holiness into us, we start to understand. Job's not there yet. Job is still maintaining, I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy. This was God's testimony of him that he was good, good compared to man, other men. But ultimately, he's going to stand before God and recognize, I am not as good as I thought I was. And at that point, he humbles himself, and then God will show him what's going on, and he will be re rewarded and blessed for all of this. And this is where we get sometimes, when we think we're doing okay, and God brings a little bit of test into our life to test us whether we believe what, what we think, shakes up our life a little bit, and we have to make our decision on who we are with him and recognize that we're not that great, we're not that perfect, we're not... We're not the greatest thing since sliced bread or the whatever term you want to use for that. Because sometimes we get to think, you know, well, I, I am super Christian. No, you know, I, nothing will bother me and I'm the one that everybody's supposed to look at. And God says, no, you aren't. You aren't. You are who you are in, in Jesus Christ, but you're not special outside of that. And so this is important as he's going in here. And he goes, he also shall be my salvation. So he's recognizing that he trusts God. He's willing to die if that's what God wants. But he goes, God is my salvation. He is my rescuer. Ultimately, that is what it all boils down to. God is the one that takes care of us. He is the one that lifts us from sin. He is the one that lifts us from adversities he's the one that lifts us out of those trials that we go to and without him we're nothing and we need to be very careful that we don't start thinking that we're somebody special and it's easy to do sometimes to get that righteous idea in your head that you know somehow I'm better because I have gotten rid of such so many sins in my life I've been there, done that at times, you know, I'll go, all right, God, look at this. I've got, I've got my life put together. I'm, I'm making something of myself. I've got, I've got something. And God says, you know, no, let me show you who you are. Job, Job is going to see this by the end of the book, but right now he's maintaining that, hey, I'm a good man. I've sacrificed. I've done all the things that God has told me to do. I've lived a righteous life as good as I can. When I have sinned, I've given my sacrifices. I stand before God clean and this is where he's at right now and he's going to be shown that yes you are but no you're not <laughs> and this is the hard thing that we have the the closer we draw to god the more we are like god but the less we are you know we'll never be god and we'll see how bad we are when we compare to god and we as human beings like to compare ourselves to other human beings and usually not human beings that are better than us <laughs> We'll find the ones that we're better than. God, well, I'm better than him and him and her and her and him. And, you know, and God says, yeah, but what about this person over here? And I don't even want you comparing them to, to another person. I want you to compare to me. I am perfect. And we will never compare to that. And we don't like that standard very often. 
And this is why I am so happy we have the word of God. Job did not have the word of God. Moses had not written the first five books of the Bible when, when Job was talking. All he had was tradition and knowledge from, from handed down from, from father to son over time. That's all he had about God. And this is what he knows, but his, his knowledge of God is very strong. He understands mercy. He understands grace. He understands that God is his salvation. He understands that he trust, needs to trust God no matter what comes his way, that God loves him and, tr and, and, he, and he learns this. It's hard to do, just like it is for us. It's hard to trust God when things are going wrong. All right? Uh, because those are the tests that God gives us. Are you going to trust me even when times are tough? And that's not easy sometimes. You know, we've all been there at some point in our time, walk with God where we're going, God, how can all these bad things be happening when I'm trying my best to live for you? And that's what's really hard. And do we trust him in, that, in those times is so important. He goes on to say, for a hypocrite shall not come before him. Somebody who is pretending to be, some, be righteous cannot stand before God. Now this is something I have seen over and over in my time with God. You see somebody, they look like they're a good Christian and hard times come in their life and they drift away from God. And they fall away. They go from being in church all the time to never being around. Because God is showing them who they are. And some of them come back when they finally get back. Some of them are total hypocrites who never knew God and drift off and never come back. And this is what is important for us. Do we come back to God? When I was away from God for two years, I was having a hard time because I knew what I was supposed to be doing. I knew where I was supposed to be, but I was doing everything wrong at that point by, go, by staying away from church, by not reading my Bible. When I would witness, which it seemed like, I know I didn't witness more than normal, but because I was in such a bad place and I was such a hypocrite, I definitely remember wit witnessing all the time during that period because I, every time I tell people they needed Jesus, the Holy Spirit would say, yeah, you do. And I'm going... And I, you know, it would be so irritating to me because I'm telling them what they need to do, knowing that I'm speaking to myself. And, you know, but a hypocrite would not even come, come that far. All right. And so he's saying, you know, I will be able to come before because God is my salvation. Hear diligently my speech and my declaration with your own words. He goes, listen carefully. <laughs> Listen to me. Listen to what I'm saying. Listen to what I am presenting. Yeah. And this is something that is so interesting because how many people do not listen? How many times have you been in a conversation and maybe you're the one not listening or you're, you're conversing with somebody who's not listening? And this is something we need to be very careful of. So many people will start thinking about what they're going to say next while the other person's talking. And this is what Job is saying. Would you all just quit working on your arguments and listen to what I am saying? Listen to my words and, and, and be paying attention. Listen diligently. Quit thinking about what you're going to say next. 
And this is a temptation with us when we are dealing with people. Sometimes we will, you know, they, they say something or they, we think we know what they're saying and we start thinking about our response to what, they're going, what, what we think they've said instead of listening. And we're already forming our arguments in our head. This is what Job is criticizing them for. Listen, listen to what I'm saying. He goes, behold, now I have ordered my cause I know that I shall be justified. He goes, I have prepared my case. I know what I'm going to say. I have set up my case. And when I get done presenting my case, I know that I'm going to win the case. Now, this is pretty bold because who's he wanting to talk to? He wants to talk to God. Uh, who knows everything. Who's wiser than he is and knows everything. And he says, you know, hey, I have ordered. I have put my case together. I am a good, I, I'm a good lawyer, I put, I put point one, one through however many down, and I am all ready to present my case, and I am absolutely sure that when I give it to the judge, the judge is going to say, oh, you're right. Now, he's pretty bold here. He's being very bold here, but he is absolutely sure that he is a good man, which again is God's testimony of him. He's not a perfect man, you know, ultimately, but in his mind, he has done everything he knows to do to serve God. And he goes, God, I am going to present it. I'm going to present that I've offered my sacrifices for myself, my, my, my wife, my kids. I, I have honored you. I have not taken your name in vain. Whatever other arguments he was going to make. You know, God, I am a really good person. And I'm sure that when I get done presenting my case to you, you're going to say, innocent. Now, he may be aware somehow that there's something between him and God and that the enemy has come in on him. I don't know because he doesn't really say that. But he says, I'm going to make my case to God. Maybe he doesn't know something and I'm going to make my case to him. And he's going to declare, yes, you're righteous. This is actually part of the side of the people that are self-righteous in the first place. And Job's showing a little bit of self-righteousness here. I'm going to put my case. I'm going to show God that I have kept all the commandments he's given me and all the rules that he's given me. And when I get done, God is going to recognize that I don't deserve anything that's happened to me. And he's going to say, I am justified. And this is something that I have met many people that feel like that way. You know, if I just can, you know, show everybody how good I am, they're all going to recognize how good I am. And they're going to recognize that I deserve every. You know, all the righteous answers from them. <laughs> this is where Job's at. Now again, Job at this point does not recognize, he does not recognize in himself and comparing himself to God. He does not have the writings of the Old Testament that, that Moses is going to write, that, that all have sinned. He's not gonna, he doesn't recognize the writings of, of Paul for all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. You know, that that uh, the wages of sin is death. He doesn't understand any of these things yet. He's still in a place where if you honor God, you do the best you can, God's going to recognize it. And this is what he wants to present. And when he stands before God, is a whole other story. So this is where he's at. And he goes, Who is he that will plead with me? For now, if I hold my tongue, I shall give up the ghost. And he says, who will argue against me for God? You know, basically saying, okay, God's not here to make his case. Are you going to argue for God? 
He's already told them that they're forging lies, that they don't know God. So he's challenging them, are any of you going to speak correctly for God? And he goes, and by the way, if I do not speak, I'm going to die. <laughs> All right. Uh, he is so sure of his innocence that he's saying, if I don't speak, then I'm going to die. This reminds me a lot of Jeremiah when he tells God, God, I'm tired of suffering every time I tell him, so I am not going to speak for you anymore. And the next verse says, my, your words burned in my mouth and I could not help but speak. Now, this isn't quite that, that same thing, but he's getting to that place with that same sentiment. I have my case to present and I must present my case or I will die. I will explode <laughs> because I cannot make my case. And here he is with this whole thing of, I'm ready to plead. Verse 20. Only do not two things unto me, then I will not hide any myself from you. Withdraw your, hands far, your hand far from me, and let not your dread make me afraid. Then call you, and I will answer, or let me speak, and answer you me. So here is his statement. He goes, God, I only ask you two things. And this is his recognizing how powerful God is. First one is quite simple. Uh, let's see, where am I at? Uh, only two things, and then if you do these two things, God, I will stand before you, is what he says. First, withdraw your hand from me. Take away all this pain Remove all this bad stuff that's been going on to me so that I can stand before you, uh, recognizing that he didn't want to stand before God in a body covered with pimples and boils and all these things. And his second one was even more interesting. Uh, and let not your dread make me afraid. He understood, going back to the argument that Zephyr was making, that God is so much bigger than we are, that we can't understand him, he's going, God, when I stand before you, do not let your holiness overwhelm me. At this point, I think he's beginning to understand that there's something there that would be that, that a man cannot stand before God. And he said, God, when it's time to stand before you, I'm asking that you do not overwhelm me with your presence so bad that I am now afraid to speak. Now, even though he does get to stand before God, the very words when he goes, he clamped his hand over his mouth, he recognizes that God did not answer the second part of his, of his request, nor even the first part as far as we know. He goes, I cannot speak because now I am in the presence of God. And God demanded him to speak. He goes, you're, you're bold enough, you come and speak to me. You know, open your mouth, answer my questions. And Job was recognizing, even back then, God, please do not overwhelm me with who you are. And this has happened to me on a couple of occasions when God has just come so heavily upon me that it's like, God, I just can't handle where, what's going on. When God just puts the smallest part of who he is on us, it's overwhelming. There's times when I've been praying and God has just come down upon me and I just break down in tears over, over his love for whoever I'm praying for or, or my lack of understanding about what I'm praying for or whatever it might be. There's times when I'm studying where God reveals himself in such a way that's like, 
God, I'm sorry, I didn't understand you at all. Job's recognizing that this is what's going to happen when God stands before him. He's saying, God, all I ask is that you take away my afflictions and that you don't overwhelm me and make me afraid when I stand before you. And any part of the presence of God will overwhelm us. I wonder sometimes how much of God's love flowed out of Jesus when he, when he ministered to people and had compassion over them and touched them with the compassion that he had and how they were, lives were changed because of the love of God. How much of the grace of God overwhelmed them at times. How much of it was veiled in his flesh because it didn't want to overwhelm everybody. How much of his holiness was, was held back so that people could not see fully what was being there, covered with humanity? Because I have seen this over the years where God just every once in a while will step in and say, I want you to understand my love, my grace, my mercy, my righteousness, my holiness, depending on what he's trying to change in my life. When I've gotten a little self-righteous and thinking I'm better than some people, he's come in and saying, let me show you my level of righteousness. And it's just overwhelming and it breaks you down. Job is saying, God, all I ask is that you don't make me afraid when I stand before you. And he goes, just do these two things. He goes, then call you and I will answer or let me speak and answer you me. He goes, God, you know, you do these two things, call me, and I will answer your questions. Now, when we get there, we, God does ask, call him and asks him a number of questions, and he goes, oops, I have nothing to say. Yeah. I have nothing to say, God. I, I'm all of a sudden realizing that I have been a fool. Up to that point, he does not recognize how unrighteous he is. Because in his mind, he has been a very righteous man. He has done everything he, he knows that God has asked him to do. He knows that with his lifestyle he's been living, he does not deserve the judgment that's coming. His friends are accusing him of being a closet sinner that has, been, has some secret sin in their life that he needs to be speaking out and confessing. And he's arguing with them that you all don't know what you're talking about. He goes, I have been a righteous man. I have done everything I know to do. Then he's going to stand before God and say, whoops, I'm not as good as I thought. Now I'm standing before the righteous one. I'm standing before the holy one. And all of a sudden his unrighteous acts and his unrighteous thinking, his unholy thinking all of a sudden stands out and going, I do not deserve to be here. And this is what happens when we come before God. Isaiah in chapter 6 says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And his veil filled the temple. And the angels cried, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God you know, Almighty. And he says that he had nothing to say when he stood before God. And then God said, Who shall, who shall I send? Who will go for me? And then Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. And the angel came down with fire I recall in the tongs that came from the altar and anointed his lips. Technically burned them, but <laughs> recognized and he was changed in all that he did because he saw the Lord. 
He saw the righteousness. He was broken by the holiness of God at whatever level it was that he saw. And it was a prophet that was doing this. He was a man who was walking for God and trying to be obedient. It's an amazing thing that when you see God's holiness and righteousness, it changes you. And none of us will see it in its completeness because it would kill us if we saw it in its completeness. Moses came before God and, and broke down before him. When he said, I want to see you, he only saw the backside of God and God declared his name as righteous and, and gracious and pure and holy. And Moses was changed from that point on as well. When we see the glory of God and his holiness, it will change us because we will be com now comparing ourselves to God rather than man. And this is where he is right now. He says, just let me come and speak. Verse 23 says, how many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Wherefore, hide your, you your face and hold me for your enemy. Will you break a leaf driven to and fro? Will you pursue the dry stubble? For you write bitter things against me and make me to possess the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet also in stocks and look narrowly un, unto me, unto all my paths. You set a print on my heels of my feet and he as a rotten thing consumes and as a garment that is moth-eaten. So here he's going on, he says, how many are my iniquities and sins? He goes, God, what, you know, what are you seeing as my iniquities and sins? He goes, I'm not counting that many. Please enumerate what I have done. Actually, he's asking God, what are the charges? <laughs> what are your charges against me? And you know, a very strong statement. He wants to know what he's done wrong. Why am I getting all this stuff going on? And make me know my transgressions and my sins. So repeating the same statement. Where, why are you hiding your face and holding me as your enemy? All right. God, why have I become your enemy? I've offered my sacrifices. Please enumerate the sins. Give me my charges. All right. God, if we're going to go to court, I need to know what the charges are so I can even defend myself. He goes, God, you're treating me as an enemy. I have loved you. I have cared for you. I have honored you. I've done what I thought I'm supposed to do. What are the charges you have against me? Now, if he really understood the righteousness of God, he would understand the charges were innumerable. But at his way where he's at, he's going, God, I have given you everything I know to give you. I've done everything the way I'm supposed to, to be. He goes, will you break a, a leaf driven to and fro? Will you pursue the dry stubble? Now, I don't know if anybody's ever tried to catch a leaf or something blown away. Let's, let's say you lose a piece of paper on a windy day around here. <laughs> Sharon, Sharon, the other day, how far do you chase that paper being driven by the wind that's usually going faster than we can run? And, I never you know, and he's saying, God, are you going to break the leaves that are blowing around? Are you going to pursue after me as the stubble that's blowing, blowing across, the, across the valley? He goes, God, I'm feeling like I'm that leaf being blown along, that stubble being blown along, and are you going to chase after me when I'm being blown, blown away? He goes, for you write bitter things against me and make me to possess the iniquities of my youth. 
God, you're writing charges against me. I don't know what they are, but they're bitter. They're hard to swallow. And he goes, and he's going, God, I have made iniquities in my youth. I, I was, maybe it goes, I'm, I was a bad child. <laughs> you know, uh, but I have changed and I've offered sacrifices. I've done what I'm going. Are you going to make me now accountable for all the things I've ever done in the past, even though I've offered my sacrifices that were supposed to cover those sins? He goes, are you going to make me pay for those? And this is a problem that most of us have when we go, God, am I going to have to pay for everything that I have ever done wrong? And how many times do we spend time being, feeling guilty for past events? God, when I was you know, this age, all of a sudden I had all these bad things in my life, and God, are now, are now you going to make me pay for those? Now, we're very fortunate in our day and age because we know that Jesus paid for all of our sins. And we know that God does not make us pay for past sins because Jesus has covered them. Now, there may be consequences for those sins. There's always consequences. Um, but I'm not having to be held accountable for them. Job is going, God, you know, those things I did when I was a kid, are you holding me accountable for those? Are those what are causing me my problems? He's starting to get a little bit of acknowledgement that he's not absolutely perfect and doesn't necessarily stand before God. He goes, you put my feet in stocks, and you look narrowly at me, uh, at all my paths. You have set a print on my heels of my feet. So as God, you have locked me in stocks. Uh, and he goes, you have, you're looking narrowly, or you're observing closely all that I have done. He's beginning to understand that there are some things in his life that God could be judging him for. And this last part is kind of interesting. You have set a print upon my heels of my feet is literally you put cuts in my feet. You've cut my feet so that you, now I can't walk. I can't, I can't do anything because I am in, it, in all of this stuff. Uh, and so he's starting to recognize. And then he goes, and he as a rotten thing consumes as a garment that the moth eats. And if you've ever seen a spoiled potato in a bag of potatoes, you have one that's really spoiled, and anything touching it is starting to get spoiled. And if you let it go long enough, they, the whole bag will get spoiled. Uh, an onion, anything that, an apple, anything that starts to spoil and get rotten ruins the entire batch, given enough time. And he goes, you know, this rot is, going, is, is causing problems. He goes, or as a garment that is moth-eaten. You know, the moths eat it and they just keep eating it and keep eating it and keep eating it until there's great big holes or multiple holes in the garment. And this is Job's argument with God. He goes, I'm feeling like I've been made rotten and, and I'm now dealing with these rotten, <laughs> rotten uh, helpers that are making me feel even worse. He goes, they're rotten and now they're making me rotten. And so all of this comes in, he's starting to begin to recognize that there may be some, something in his life that God is judging. The little chinks in his armor are coming in. Even though he's maintaining that I have done what is right, I have done what is good, there's starting to be this understanding that maybe he is not as perfect as he has been maintaining. 
But his question is, God, how far back are you going? I thought these things were all, all under the sacrifices. I thought these were all taken care of. I've done the best I can in, in recent days. Why now is all this trouble coming upon me? And this is something that's very important for us at times, is why now do bad things happen? And a lot of times we'll look and go, God, is this from 20 years ago when I did this? Is this from... You know, when I didn't follow you and do this is, you know, and we need to be very careful about that because it's under the blood and God is forgiven. There may be consequences for it, you know, but there's still, it's forgiven. And we need to understand, and this is where Job is at right now. He's trying to figure things out as best he can. And he doesn't have a full answer to anything yet. He's not going to get the full answer until later when he all of a sudden God shows him that, this has all been a test to see whether you would hold on to your integrity. And we know that because that's what Satan says. If you just do this, he will, he will not honor you. And if you do this, his integrity will be lost. Over and over again, that was Satan's accusation. Job holds on to his integrity, holds on to his trust in God, in spite of all the bad that happens to him. Yes, he struggles during that time, just as any of us would have struggled during all that time. But ultimately, he holds on and says, I am going to trust God no matter what. I don't understand what's going on, but I will trust God that he is my savior, that he is my salvation. He is the one that cares for me. And this is where he's at, and this is where he holds on. Even though he struggles, he holds on. And God responds to him later on. Lord, we ask you to bless our evening. Lord, teach us that you love us in a great way and help us to understand all that you've done for us and keep us. And let us trust you for all that you've done. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening, friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church P.O. Box 65 Chloride, Arizona 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.